Good morning, Crossridge. Can I tell you something? I am really excited to be here this morning. I love opening up God's Word, and I'm glad that we can do that together. And let's be honest, the weather outside, can we pick a better day to open up God's Word and to meet together in community? Can I get an amen from that? Come on. Yeah, that's excellent. It's like, oh, it's going to be one of those guys, huh? Okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Uh, I'm actually going to start by showing my age here a little bit, possibly. Uh, when I was young, or younger, I was fascinated with the writing of C.S. Lewis and George MacDonald, and of course the master himself, J.R.R. Tolkien. But when I wanted a break from Narnia or Middle Earth, I had a series of go-to books called Choose Your Own Adventure. Okay, is anybody familiar with that? Anybody out there? Yeah, you're old like me. Thank you. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Choose Your Own Adventure, or CYOA, uh, was a popular book series uh, written around the premise that the readers could dictate the outcome of the story. Each book introduced the story's characters in conflict, but then the real fun began. As a reader, you are presented with different choices at crucial moments of the story. If you choose to continue down the hallway, then turn to page 26. But if you choose to open the door right in front of you, turn to page 57. The goal, of course, was usually not to die. Okay, The bar was pretty low. Uh, but there were often different ways to end the book, some more interesting than others. Growing up, I read many of these books, but I had a favorite, CYOA number 13, The Abominable Snowman. Okay, The Abominable Snowman, right here. Okay, right here. Uh, the subheading to the book reads, You're the star of the story. Choose from 28 possible innings. 28! 28 possible innings. Now, I don't remember much about the story itself, but I do remember why I liked this book. It was significantly more difficult than the other books. Uh, there was even an interactive movie made about this book, and I'm sure William H. Macy is very, very proud of that work. Uh, obviously, with a cover like that, uh, we're not going to expect great literature, uh, but I do recall that in order to make it through the story, I had to make choices that were not always apparent. I remember being captured by the Yeti. Uh, falling off the mountain, or being trapped in an avalanche multiple, multiple times before I made it out of the story alive. Uh, but that wasn't the end of the matter. I kept returning to the story because I wanted to not just make it out alive, I wanted to find and unlock the hero's ending. I didn't want to conclude the story by barely missing death. I wanted the noble and heroic ending. Now, our world wrestles with what it means to live wisely with the limited time and energy and resources that we have. And at Crossridge, we believe that the Bible tells the world's most compelling story about our reality. As a church, we began last week in our new summer series on the book of Proverbs. As some of you know, Proverbs fits into a genre of the Bible called wisdom literature. While the word wisdom may remind you of old men in white togas. Uh, wisdom in Proverbs, and really the entire Bible, calls us to be reflective about our own actions and behaviors in light of the reality that God is good. So today, 
We're going to be looking at Proverbs 8 to answer the question about why we would even want to live wisely. And as we explore Proverbs 8, in many ways, we are dropped into a choose-your-own-adventure. But instead of traversing a glacier or exploring an ice cave, we are presented with a much more meaningful decision to choose wisdom or to choose folly. To choose to follow Madam Folly or Lady Wisdom, the wicked man or the royal king. And in this chapter and throughout the whole of Proverbs, the writer explains that true wisdom is not just making good choices about your money, not just making good choices about your relationships or even your faith and how you worship, but it's about following a way of life. Wisdom is a matter of changing our desires and not just our minds. True wisdom is personified representation of God himself. And when we walk in God's wisdom, then we walk in a way that most closely exemplifies the image of God, which ultimately brings great joy. And with that, let's pray before we open up God's word. Dear Lord, I thank you that I have an opportunity to be here. I pray that none of my words would be remembered today but that your word would be remembered first and foremost. May I stand up here and make you clear. In your name I pray. Amen. Now this morning, like I said, I'm going to look at Proverbs 8, 1 to 11. And I'm going to give three answers to one question. Why would I want God's wisdom? Why would you even want God's wisdom? But before we do that, I want to set the table for this proverb so we can better understand what we are looking at. First of all, Like some of you, I grew up with a steady diet of Proverbs in my house. My dad often subscribed to the Proverbs devotional plan. You know that one? One proverb a day for the entire month, and then at the end of the month, you reset. Uh, My mom had these little colored cards on the kitchen windowsill with a daily two-line proverb. And I'm sure there were some framed samplers stitched and hung somewhere in the house, maybe two or three, I don't know. And I'm really thankful for being exposed to those Proverbs from an early age. I really am. But it wasn't until years later that I understood that Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, was more than just pithy two-line lines of wisdom, but an intricate book that was divided into three parts. The first section, Proverbs 1 to 9, is divided into three three three-chapter sections, which actually are speeches about four distinct characters. The two wise characters. The wicked, sorry, he's not wise, never mind. Uh, The royal father or king and lady wisdom. Those are the wise characters. And the two foolish characters. The wicked or violent man and the foolish woman who's sometimes called Madam Folly. Now these speeches in the first nine chapters serve as a general overview of all the subjects talked about in the entire book. And within this framework, chapter 8 is actually the last appeal from Father, the royal father to follow one of the most beautiful and fascinating characters in the entire Bible, Lady Wisdom. Now, technically, Lady Wisdom is not a physical character, but she is an expression of God's self, a personification of God's wisdom in literature. Now, this character shows up numerous times in Proverbs and throughout the Bible as well as outside of the Bible. The Greeks referred to Lady Wisdom as Sophia, which is where we get the term philo-sophia, philosophy, 
the love of wisdom. This is important because Solomon, the writer of most of the Proverbs, is creating a picture of wisdom as not just a clever set of life hacks, but is describing wisdom as a person who we can follow and have an active relationship with. The second way we need to set the table for Proverbs 8 is by understanding that this chapter, along with the first nine chapters, is really just one hyperlink after another back to Genesis 1 to 3. In fact, I cannot stress this enough. The more I study the Bible, the more that I realize that almost the entirety of Scripture is just one big hyperlink back to Genesis. Genesis is really an important book in the Bible, not because it just talks about origins and purpose, but it frames the whole story of the Bible and acknowledges that we live in a world that was made to be lived in in a right relationship with the Creator. And so Proverbs 8 is especially important in understanding that. Now, like I said, Proverbs isn't just a nice collection of wise sayings, but a continuing narrative of Adam and Eve and their quest to find wisdom. In Genesis 2, humans have a choice to choose life or death. In Proverbs, we get a parallel, but a new image. The wise woman or the foolish woman. The wise man or the foolish man. And as readers, we are presented with two paths and challenged to choose the right one. The path of wisdom. You see, God created humans in his image, and we are his image bearers. Both male and female together create God's image. And the purpose has a calling attached to it. And that purpose is to rule the world with God. And if that's the case, then we are going to need to know how to rule well. How to do it wisely and to create goodness when we rule. Because let's be honest, we can really screw things up when we rule poorly. Back in the Garden of Eden, there are two distinct trees. The tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and bad or evil. In Proverbs 8, Lady Wisdom is described as a tree that bears fruit, which is much better than gold. This is a direct reference back to the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. God wants humanity to eat from this tree. The tree brings life. It brings pleasure. It brings joy. Because eating from the tree is connected with seeking God's wisdom. And when humans walk in God's wisdom, it brings joy to those around us and to us. But there's another tree. A tree that represents the ability to take our own path and find wisdom apart from a relationship with God. To do good in our own eyes. That brings death to the world. It breaks the unity between each other and between us and God. After the fall, Adam and Eve are left asking questions about how and where and why to find wisdom. Many of the same questions we continue to grapple with today. And when Adam failed, we are invited as readers to make a different call than Adam and Eve. And even a different call than Solomon himself. Tim Mackey puts it this way. If we abstract out Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job and disconnect them from the storyline and just make them philosophical essays about the good life, we miss all of the connections to Genesis. This is a story that hyperlinks these books back to Genesis. 
so that we can see ourselves replaying the Garden of Eden in our own lives. So with that long introduction, let's go ahead and dive into the text. I'm actually going to read this in three sections and give three different answers to the question, why would I want God's wisdom? So we're going to read Proverbs 8, 1 to 3 to begin with. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. Human desire is a very, very strange animal. We often think of our decision-making as a straightforward and logical sequence. But personal experience and reams of data and literature and scripture should lead us to believe differently. It's one thing to change our minds. It's quite another to change our hearts. In his book, You Are What You Love, James K. Smith writes, Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity. The wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Do you get that? He said that the wellspring from our actions and behavior actually comes from our desires. So in the first three verses of chapter 8, we hear the voice of the royal king who describes Lady Wisdom. As a woman who calls and raises her voice at the most prominent places in the town. In other words, she's not hard to miss. So if wisdom is so visible and so available, then why don't people choose it more often? The answer is a matter of desire. (laughs) I have a loose life rule. Generally speaking... If someone is giving me advice or somebody else advice and they start their phrase like this, you just have to. If only you did dot, dot, dot. It's as simple as... If I hear those words, I pretty much tune out right away. Just, only, simple are restrictive words that usually only get at the superficial understanding of a problem. We may have phrases like, burn fewer calories than you consume, save more money than you spend, listen more than you talk, great life lessons. But it flattens the real issue beneath the problem that actually has to be dealt with before moving forward. I'm not saying that the answers to many of our questions have to be complicated or that many of our answers can't be resolved by simple obedience. But advice, in my opinion, that begins with these statements often neglects the root issue of desire, which is the first answer to our question of why would I want God's wisdom? The first answer is it changes my desire. It changes my desires. In Genesis 3.6, it says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This verse illustrates the role that desire plays in our decision making. 
At the crossroads of Proverbs 8, Lady Wisdom takes her stand, which infers that there are decisions that must be made. These crossroads are not just small decisions that we make, but an entry point to a whole way of living. Where Lady Wisdom is calling out for us to make full-scale change, Madam Folly offers life hacks. The quick fixes to our actions, but not our desires. She is the infomercial of wisdom. The sham wow of knowledge, if you like. She is the band-aid fix to a much deeper cut. Because we are not just instructed to listen to wisdom. We are instructed to follow it. The beginning of Psalm 1 reminds us that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinner, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Wisdom, then, is an intimate knowledge of the way of God, which changes our desires. I remember before Luke, our oldest son, was born, I was scared out of my mind. I read books about parenting, listened to podcasts about parenting, had coffee with numerous people, some people even in this room, about parenting, trying to calm the nerves of a soon-to-be father. I'm going to level with you. What started out as a healthy desire to be a good parent quickly turned into an anxious obsession. I thought that if I had just the right information, just the right words at just the right time, that things were going to be okay. That if I could do all of that, then I was going to be a good father. What began as healthy and a wise desire quickly and subconsciously morphed into an unhealthy craving to be saved by the resources and information I found. In many ways, I was guilty of replacing my trust and reliance of God on finding the perfect advice. I was seeking wisdom, but I was not seeking God. Obviously, in parenting as well as all areas of life, there are some tools that are better than others. But no amount of information will ever remove our anxiety and give us peace the same way as God. Years ago, When I lived in Seattle, before I was married, uh, my pastor at that time spoke one morning about the difference between pursuing righteousness and and pursuing sinlessness. A life lived pursuing righteousness is a life lived trying... Sorry. A life uh, pursuing righteousness and a life lived trying not to sin are very, very different. A life motivated by righteousness will understand the weight of our sin, but then we will also experience the freedom and joy and the grace and forgiveness of God. And this will lead us to press into God because we love Him. A life lived to not sin will create one of two things. Pride, because we manage to do a pretty good job of resisting sin, or at least good enough, uh, better than the people around us. Or despair, because we realize we can't. And we bear the full weight of our sin all by ourselves. Either way, we are alone in those decisions. 
Our desires must be changed because even the most well-intentioned desires of our hearts can be corrupted and lead us away from the joy of the Lord. C.S. Lewis puts it brilliantly, as he so often does, in his book, Mere Christianity, when he writes that fallen humanity is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement, but a rebel who must lay down his arms. So, if one of the reasons that we want God's wisdom is because it changes our desire, then I have to ask, what do you desire? What are you meditating on? What are you devoting your time and resources to? In what ways do you need to lay down your arms and surrender? The second reason why we would want God's wisdom is that we are not as smart as we think we are. Now, Scotiabank loves to make us feel good when it it reminds us that you are richer than you think. But Proverbs, well, kind of the opposite. Proverbs continually calls out the simple ones and the fools, which, guess what? That's us. In verses 4 and 5, Lady Wisdom takes the stand for the first time. So let's go ahead and read those verses. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Now, I just finished saying that wisdom transforms our desires. And often one of the most problematic uh, false desires that we have is thinking that we already have the wisdom we need. I remember in my final year of university, I was taking a lower-level English class to satisfy my graduation requirements. Now, I was preparing to graduate, and I didn't really think twice about the effort that it would take to pass this class. And then I got my first essay back. (laughs) There was more red ink on that essay than I had ever seen combined in all of my university career. And you know what? I was furious. I was so mad. I had never received such a low mark before. I had never received so many corrections before. And as Lee mentioned last week, it was my life punching me in the face. And I had to deal with it. I had to figure out what I was going to do. And so you know what I did? I stormed around campus for two hours, really mad. How could she? Dot, dot, dot. How dare she? What does she know? I mean, she just has a doctorate in it, right? What does she know? But the person who didn't know was me. <laughs> you see, something strange, strange happened when I read and reread that professor's comments. I slowly realized that she was right. I was being lazy. I could do better. I wasn't as clear as I could have been. And when I met with her about my paper, my mindset had completely shifted. Instead of being angry, what I wanted to know was all the intricacies of those beautiful red marks. I wanted to use her knowledge to better understand how I could improve. It was only when my arrogant assumptions about my own writing were shattered that I was actually ready to learn. I think this happens more often than we like to admit. At least it does to me. When we read or watch a story, we often project or strongly identify with one of the characters. 
In literary jargon, this is called mirroring. We do this with the Bible, too. But I find that sometimes we actually identify with the wrong character. Okay? And because of that, we sort of miss the point of the author. We might read the story of David and Goliath and mirror the strong and courageous David when really we're probably more like the cowardly Saul or the Israelites. Uh, we might read about Jesus in the Gospels and try to memorize his words for the next time we encounter our own brood of vipers when really we're far more likely to be like the self-righteous Pharisees in the story. Likewise, Solomon is once again hyperlinking us back to the Garden of Eden to examine our own desires. A common question from kids and adults alike is, what would have happened if Adam and Eve never sinned? What if they didn't take the fruit? Now, it's a fair question, but sometimes... Embedded in that question is a slight undertone of superiority, like Adam and Eve really screwed up, and I would have done a better job. I wouldn't have done that. Uh, spoiler alert, yes, you would have. We all would have. I would have. Why? Because we often, I often overvalue my own understanding. Proverbs 1, and pretty much everywhere in the whole entire Bible, reminds us, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 9, we are reminded, Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. So do you want to know if you're wise? How do you respond when people challenge your authority of your understanding? What is in your mind and in your heart when somebody tries to teach you something? Even someone who might believe or think differently than you. Do you listen to people like they have something to teach you? Or must you always be the teacher? Where Lady Wisdom offers opportunities, Madam Folly offers self-delusion. The term scoffer refers to someone who mocks someone else or belittles them for not being as smart as they are. A poor translation of the Hebrew term for scoffer would be a huffer and roller of eyes. In other words, a scoffer holds a position of arrogance which is the opposite of wisdom's humility. I have been there so many times. Proverbs uses one word to define this posture of arrogance. Evil. It is the antithesis of God's wisdom. In verse 5 of chapter 8, it mentions that the simple ones need to learn prudence and the fools need to learn sense. Simple and foolish are not words describing intellect. They are words about desire. Solomon knew Solomon himself knew that he should not take many wives, that he should not hoard money, that he should not build the empire of Israel on the back of slaves. It's said there very clearly in Deuteronomy. And guess what? He did it anyway. He was a fool, and it destroyed him. 
the wisest man in the entire Bible succumbed to the same folly as Adam and Eve. How can we think that we have it all together then? The root words for simple and foolish paint a picture of a person who is overindulged and sluggish to change, thick-headed and arrogant. They know a good thing when they see it, and they will indulge in it for as long as they want, and no one will tell them otherwise. These people are easily enticed and misled because of their own desires. There's a reason that all wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It puts our understanding in its place. It reminds us that we need wisdom because we don't have enough of it. In Greek philosophy, Socrates is proclaimed as the wisest of all men by the oracle at Delphi because he claimed to know nothing, which led him to create the Socratic dialogue method, which is a series of questions that gets at the heart of a matter. In 1 Corinthians 2, the Apostle Paul writes, He decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. If we want God's wisdom because it reminds us that we are not as smart as we think we are, then I have to ask, in what ways are we guilty of scoffing? Do we need to seek forgiveness? Are we acting independent and self-sufficient because we believe that we always know best? The third and final answer to why I would want God's wisdom is because it provides a blessing of joy. Let's read Proverbs 8, 6 to 11. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. My mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. If our desires are changed to see God's wisdom, and to acknowledge that we need God's wisdom, then the final step is one that I think we too often neglect. Enjoying the benefit of God's wisdom because that wisdom is God himself. That wisdom is the spirit of God leading us. In verses 6 to 9, Lady Wisdom speaks noble truths, righteous truths, and direction to knowledge and understanding that are not crooked, or twisted, or deceitful. In other words, wisdom wants you to succeed. Wisdom wants you to choose the right path and receive all the blessings that you are waiting for. There are no hidden fees, no pyramid schemes, and no sneaky annual subscription fees that automatically renew without any warning, right? Hey, who hates those? Lady Wisdom is a straight shooter. The most common hurdle for people who are speaking in front of other people is actually fear of speaking in front of other people. For most people, the fear of public speaking is actually a bigger fear than death. 
And as the comedian Jerry Seinfeld pointed out years ago, that means that at a funeral, most people would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. Now, in my high school classes, I often encourage reluctant speakers that the audience is on your side. Your audience wants you to succeed. Sure, some of the audience includes friends and family who are personally invested in you. But generally speaking, your audience wants you to succeed because, let's be honest, no one wants to hear a bad speech. It's terribly self-serving, but it's true. Even when I started this morning, most, if not all of you, wanted me to succeed because you don't want to hear a bad sermon. You wanted the next 30 minutes of your day to go well, or you wanted to catch a quick nap. Either way, I hope that's working out for you. Wisdom is the same. In the Christian classic, The Knowledge of the Holy, by A.W. Tozer, he writes, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most, and the most portentist fact that any man of any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Tozer goes on to say that our spiritual practices can be predicted by our understanding of who we think God is. If you think God is an easygoing love guru, then that will affect the way that you worship him. If you see God as a strict Pharisee type that demands moral perfection, then that will also affect the way that you worship him. Remember, Lady Wisdom is calling out to the simple and the fools from the most prominent places, speaking what is noble to the common, making the difficult way clear, offering something that is better than gold or jewels to all who may ask. That is a God I want to worship. James 1.5 says, If you lack wisdom, go and read a whole encyclopedia. If you lack wisdom, study for years, and then maybe you'll get it. No, that's not what it says. If you, act, if you lack wisdom, what do you need to do? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. Do you realize that if God is wisdom, then James is saying that if you lack wisdom, then God will give himself to you generously. No questions asked. The reason that wisdom is better than gold and jewels is that it's a renewable source. Like love, it can be nurtured and grow within a relationship. Many of you know the familiar story in 2 Chronicles 1 where God asks Solomon, the writer of Proverbs, what he wanted. And Solomon asked for wisdom to govern God's people well. And because he didn't ask for riches and power and glory, God gave it all to him. Now this is not a name it and claim it message. This is not the prosperity gospel. But let's be honest. Proverbs 8 is claiming nothing short of offering the greatest thing on the entire earth freely to anyone who wants it. This is a picture of a kind and generous God who wants to bless you with his wisdom. And the way he blesses us with his wisdom is by blessing us with himself. John proclaims these words about Jesus in the first chapter of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, 
And the word was God. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. But to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30, Paul writes, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who become, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And again in Colossians 2, 2 and 3, he says, That their hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which in Christ, in whom all hidden treasures are there of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Proverbs 8 personifies lady wisdom as one who promises blessings to those who listen and wait for her. But in the Gospels, we move beyond the personification to the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. The one who is the word, the logos, the wisdom of God who is there from the beginning. The one who physically came to earth to direct the simple, the foolish, to a new kingdom. One who claims that he wants us to have life and have it abundantly. Where Eve took the forbidden fruit and gave it to Adam, Jesus took up the cross and gave himself to us. Jesus is the better Adam who promises access to wisdom and all of its blessings of joy. And so as we conclude, we are reminded of those silly choose your own adventure books. Proverbs 9, the last chapter in the series of Solomon's speeches, describes a choice for us to make. But this time, it's a matter of life and death. This is the royal king's final appeal. He describes the familiar call of Lady Wisdom, but he also describes the seductive call of Madame Folly. Both women have the same exact proclamation. Both characters say, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. They both say that. The theologian Dermot Cox explains that this is an example of wisdom competing for attention. Both wisdom and folly are calling to us. And they can look and sound very familiar. But the way of wisdom is the only one that will lead us to an abundant goodness and true life. Where have you needed wisdom in your life? Where are you currently seeking wisdom? Maybe for some of you, you realize that you haven't been seeking God's wisdom for the right reasons or even seeking it at all. To echo the words of James, if you want wisdom, you just have to ask for it. Why would we want God's wisdom? It changes our desires to what we want and that it would match up with what God wants in our lives. It helps us have humility and seek first the kingdom of God. And it provides a blessing of joy in a world that tries to satisfy us with temporary hacks. This wisdom gives us the ability to see the paths that lead to joy. It is a blatant and unabashed hope to believe the words of Jesus when he calls us to live life abundantly. But there is 
the crux of the matter. While following God's wisdom does lead to blessing, the real joy does not lie in the good life. The real joy is God himself. That is the gift that is better. Lady wisdom is a representation of God, and God is wisdom. And we find our greatest joy when we live in relationship with God. And when we live in a relationship with God, it changes our desires. We understand who he is and who we are. And we experience the lavish love of a good God. Folly would like us to believe that the way of wisdom is difficult and treacherous and not really worth the hassle. But I want to leave you with the words of Eugene Peterson from his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I think these words ultimately remind us that the life paths we choose, we are not walking alone. He says this, The easiest thing in the world is to be a Christian. What is hard is to be a sinner. Being a Christian is what we were created for. The life of faith has the support of an entire creation and the resources of a magnificent redemption. The structure of this world was created by God so we can live in it easily and happily as his children. The history we walk in has repeatedly entered, been entered by God, most notably in Jesus Christ. First to show us and then to help us live full of faith and exuberant with purpose. In the course of Christian discipleship, we discover that without Christ, we were doing it the hard way. And that with Christ, we are doing it the easy way. It is not Christians who have it hard, but non-Christians. Christian discipleship is a decision to walk in his ways steadily and firmly. And then finding that the way integrates all our interests, passions, and gifts, our human needs, and our eternal aspirations. It is the way of life where we, we were created for. There are endless challenges in it to keep us on the growing edge of faith. There is always the God who sticks with us to make it possible for us to persevere. Let's go ahead and pray this morning. Dear Lord in heaven, I thank you that you have blessed us with your wisdom, which is really a blessing of yourself. I ask you, Lord, that you would help us understand your wisdom, and that it would change our desires, that it would change who and what we want to be, but ultimately, I pray that it would help us to find joy. In your holy and precious name, I pray. Amen.